Hey everyone, we're so glad you can join us in, in worship and, and now as we get into the Word. Greg is on vacation this week actually, so we'll be taking a step away from the book of Mark and for a couple weeks go into the book of Ephesians. So today we're actually going to be covering Ephesians 1 through 3. Uh, and then Will next week will be covering Ephesians 4 and 5. And then a few weeks later in the end of July, Jeff will be uh, covering chapter 6. So we're super excited to dive into this book of Ephesians. Uh, and we're excited that you can join us from your home, from your bedroom, from your iPhone, from your laptop, wherever you might be, that we can be connected as one body of Christ as we dive into this book that really has a ton of applicable, applicable instruction for us uh, in the times that we live in. So let's pray for the time and then we'll get started. God, we thank you that we can meet virtually, that we can uh, consider your words that you have given us through your Holy Spirit. Uh, Lord, and we pray that you would speak to us, Lord, that you would speak through me, God, through your word, um, Lord, and that we would draw near to you, God. Lord, help us to know who you are in a deeper way. Lord, help us to um, understand what you have done for us and what this means for us as well, God. Um, Lord, we, we know that there's so many struggles in this world. Um, every individual has their different story, and you know that story, God. So we pray um, this time um, that we gather virtually that you would speak clearly and in power uh, through your Holy Spirit, God. In your name we pray. Amen. So we're going to be covering, as I said, the book of Ephesians. And just as an overview, which will help us set the stage for where we're going, uh, Paul is writing this book uh, to the people of Ephesus, uh, and he stayed in this city for around three years, a little over three years probably, as shown in Acts 19 and 20, that you can read that on your own time during the week as homework. Um, so Ephesus, the city, was a capital in Greece, and really it was, it was a transit center. There was roads that were connecting Ma uh, Asia, which was modern-day Eastern Europe, uh, and that brought to a lot of um, people coming through Ephesus and hearing the gospel. Just by Paul planting himself in a city for a few years, really the entire region was impacted and, and heard the gospel. And we find that in Acts 19.10, it says that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Uh, and so, of course, maybe not every single person came through Ephesus and heard the word of God, but it showed the impact of the ministry of Paul and the ministry of the gospel when it's boldly proclaimed that all people hear the word of God. And this is important information as we kind of take a bird's eye view of, a free, of Ephesians is that it's a little unique for the books written by Paul. Uh, most letters are directed at a specific church or a person with specific instructions of what is happening at the church or in the city that the church is in. There's specific issues about confrontation, instruction, encouragement. But for Ephesians, Paul is more addressing the greater church. Um, since it was so widespread in nature that the whole region, that Eastern Europe was impacted by the work of the gospel in Ephesus, that the Holy Spirit through Paul put together overarching themes of Christianity in the book of, Ephes of, of Ephesians um, that we'll consider today and, and over the next few weeks um, as we cover the book. Um, so it's really a cool bird's eye view even of Christianity that it's going to be so good and I'm so excited to cover with you all. 
Uh, so we split the book up into three sections, and, and it's very common, but the idea of sitting, walking, and then standing, and we covered uh, that in Ephesians 1 through 3, then 4 and 5, and then chapter 6. And we're, you're going to see how it makes sense of sitting, walking, and standing in Christ and what that looks like uh, today in our Christian lives. Uh, so we're not going to touch on every verse. So if I don't cover one verse uh, that you love, uh, don't throw stones at me. Don't throw angry emojis at me or something like that. Uh, we're going to cover the overarching view. However, we will be reading every verse. And I think this is important because we can let the word speak to us. God will speak through his word. He does speak through his word. So we're going to be reading a lot of verses, but we may not touch on every theme, every um, truth that is in every verse. Otherwise, we'd be here for about 25 hours, and I don't know if we have the attention span for that these days. Uh, so hopefully you're excited as we get into the book of Ephesians. So the first theme that we're going to talk about in Ephesians chapter 1 through 3 is the centrality of Christ. And most of the themes that we're going to be touching on have a specific section of Scripture that it is applied to in, in Ephesians. But this theme, which is the centrality of Christ, is overarching. It's the umbrella theme of Ephesians chapter 1 through 3. Um, so please keep in mind as we go through each scripture, each section, each theme, that you're going to see the centrality of Christ throughout. As Christians in this world, it is so easy to get caught up in religious traditions. It's easy to strive to please God, to do good, to love our neighbor. It's, all those things are good. It's, it's even easy to get into theological debates and, and, and all of these things that we do that are commanded in Scripture to do and, and to do good to others and to good, do good in society. But it's easy to not keep Christ at the center of it and at the focus of our lives and our actions. So I think what we're going to see through these three chapters of Ephesians of the centrality of Christ is going to be extremely applicable to our uh, day today. And it's interesting if we just back up even a second that as we are called Christians today, um, it's interesting to hear about where it originally came from. And, and so it literally means little Christians. And actually, Christians did not come up with the name of Christians. It's people that were not believers in Christ called them little Christ. They called them Christians. They saw the people following Christ, and they named them that because that is what they were known for. They weren't called do-gooders. They weren't called the people that did good in society. They, they knew everything started and ended with their lives, though they may not have agreed. With They, they knew that their lives started and ended with their faith in Christ. And so as we consider these themes, um, we can ask ourselves, would our lives, uh, looked on by outsiders, be known that Christ is the center of our lives, that Christ is the preeminent position, the source of our lives. And we know from these uh, Ephesians 1 through 3 that Christ is the center of the Christian faith. Um, and you'll really see in this section that there are no specific directions or commands towards believers in the first three chapters. The only thing it really commands us to do is to remember Christ, pointing back to the central position, the centrality of Christ. Um, so remember this as we dive in. So we're going to actually get into the book of Ephesians now. So during the first 23 verses, we're going to see the theme of our identity in Christ. Uh, so let's 
let's consider this, this topic of our identity in Christ. We so often ask, who am I or who are you? What is my purpose? What makes me, me? Uh, we so often try to define it in different ways, um, some okay, some not so good. But we're going to figure out what it means to have our identity in Christ. So we're going to read verses 1 through 14 now. It goes like this. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have a redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as the plan of the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And so in these, these first 14 verses, there's a lot of stuff in it. Once again, we could spend hours on it. But just think, how does God describe us in this section? How does God describe our identity in this section? And I'll just name a few really quickly. We are blessed in Christ we are, with every spiritual blessing. We are chosen by Christ. We are adopted through Christ. We are redeemed or brought back through Christ's blood. We are forgiven through the redemption of Christ. We are lavished. We are given the riches of God's grace. God's will through Christ is revealed to us, so God gives us knowledge of things that in the scripture it says that even angels long to, uh, long to seek and long to know. It says that God's will through Christ is revealed to us. It says that we are, have obtained an inheritance and that we are the praise of Christ's glory, that God loves us so much that he sings over us, it says in Zephaniah in the Old Testament, that God, God loves us so much. And then it says that we are sealed with Christ, sealed by Christ with the Holy Spirit. So you ask, who are you? Who am I? What is my purpose? What makes me, me? God is the one who declares these things over you, these things to you and about you. So we have so many ways to answer the question of who are we, some good and some not so good, but shouldn't your creator be the one to determine who you are? He knows you best because he created you. He created every bone, he created every aspect of your body, and he knows you best, and this is what he says about you. 
ultimately God, the way God defines us is the most importantly and ultimately the only, one, only reason and opinion that matters because it is eternal and unchanging. And just think about this COVID, this, this new normal that we live in, that it has interrupted our lives in a lot of ways. It may have interrupted the thing that you considered your identity. Your work may have shifted, and that was your identity. Your livelihood and what you did for fun may have been your identity, and it was shaken. And so things in life come about and, and things happen in our lifetimes that change our external identity. But the identity in Christ is sure and certain and is not changing. It is unchanging and it is eternal forever and ever. And I know in my life there's been times where I've struggled with doubts of who I am, doubts of, uh, doubts of, of what my purpose is. And it, it, it led to bouts of depression. There was days and nights that I'm just sad, and, and sometimes I can't even explain it. There's been times where I was, I was sick and, and on the floor in, in the bathroom sick from my diabetes, and it was hard because I just didn't want to live anymore because I felt so terrible. But thanks be to God out of his grace that he reminded me of these truths that I just read. And I remember there was a time that I was traveling for work and busy and just working 12 plus hour days and I had never been more sad and just lonely during those times. And I remember my mentor just told me to read Ephesians chapter one and what truths, what good reminders that we have from Christ that this is who we are. This is our identity as Christ. This is who God considers us to be. Praise be to God. The core of who we are as believers is ultimately defined in Christ, and I would say defined here in Ephesians chapter 1 in an amazing way. And this is going to set the stage for a lot of things that he's going to talk about in Ephesians, but we have to remember that our identity is in Christ. It is unchanging for those who believe, those who are adopted by Christ, that God chose us out of his glorious grace and love. That this is the foundation that we are going to talk about everything else in Ephesians chapter 1. And, and, and just to reiterate um, this identity in Christ, Paul doesn't go and run to the next point. He sits here for a while. Um, so let's read verses 15 through 23 to conclude this theme of our identity being in Christ. And so it says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule, authority, and power, and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So as we just talked about identity and who we are in Christ, what does Paul pray for? Does he pray for them to do a lot of good works in response to this identity or join a church or become a good citizen? No, he once again goes back 
to our identity in Christ. He starts with praying, verse 17, that God would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. So God wants us to know that hope that is in him, that he wants us to know the immeasurable greatness of his power. And, and it also reiterates that God is over everything. At the end of this prayer in verse 20, 21, 22, that God is over all things, that he is a supreme being, that we have, in a, based on our identity in Christ, the access to God himself, the supreme being, the creator, and the ruler of all things. And so a lot of times we say, oh, of course my identity is in Christ, I call myself a Christian, and then quickly move on from there. But I think we need to sit here. We need to remind ourselves. There's a reason that Paul prayed that they would know God and that they would know him more. They knew that they were believers. They knew they were adopted for Christ. But how quickly we forget that. How quickly when we mess up that we forget that we are beloved, that we are chosen, that we are um, a receiver of his inheritance. How often we get sad just because life is hard and we forget the glorious grace that Christ has shown us and the glorious grace that God has given us. And so we need to not just, okay, move on. My identity is in Christ. Now what do I do? This is everything stems. Everything is sourced from our identity in Christ. So we can never sit on this too long. We can never talk about how we are identified in Christ enough because we leak, we wander, we stray from the truth. There's lies in our head. There's lies all around us say that our identity is in this or in that. But our identity is in Christ. And we need to remind ourselves. So if you need to read Ephesians 1 every day, if you need to read it every week, every month, do it. And remind yourselves that your identity is in Christ. And it is not of your own doing. If you remember, all of these things are saying that God has done this. God has chosen you. God has adopted you. God has given you all these things that is because of Christ and for Christ ultimately. So believer in Jesus, God determines who you are. And I pray that you are reminded constantly of his thoughts towards you in Ephesians 1. And similar as Paul prays, I pray for all of us that we would know Christ more and to know his power, to know his grace, to know his riches. For those that are not believers in Christ, it doesn't say that all people are identified in Christ like this. It's for those who believe. It is for those who have been chosen, who have been adopted toward, uh, by God. So how does one run towards him? How are we given this identity? And that's where we're going to step into chapter 2, where Paul addresses this exact question of how are we identified in Christ like this? Because I want it. I want Ephesians 1 over my life. I want Ephesians 1 in my life. But Ephesians 1 can't come without Ephesians chapter 2. So we, we know our identity is in Christ for those who believe. But then we are reminded in Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10, that our, our resurrection is in Christ. And a resurrection in Christ precedes our identity in Christ. So let's read verses 1 through 10 of Ephesians chapter 2. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which, which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, 
carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so right after we were told how much we are loved, we are chosen, how God lavishes his grace and riches on us. This beautiful Ephesians chapter 1, which we should never forsake, that we should never forget, that we need to remind ourselves all the time. It now says in Ephesians chapter 2 that we are dead. What a contradiction. It seems like we're loved, but we're dead. What does this mean? But Paul goes on to explain this. And it says that we are dead, and this means not complete, like completely dead. It's not like half dead, you're on your last string, like you're not going to make it. Like you are actually dead, dead as dead could be. Not just some dead parts within us. Not just a bad day at the office and, oh, I, I messed up. It was just a rough day. I need to go to sleep and I'll start over again. That's not what Paul is talking about. This is that we are completely dead and we are immovable. We can't do anything for any good. So what causes this deadness? As it says in Ephesians chapter 2, it's our sins and trespasses. Anything that we do against God's law or against God himself or against the way God designed things to be, those things separate us from God and lead to death. Not just the worst sins or the bad sins like murder, but every sin leads us towards death. And that is inevitable for every single human being. There is no human being that is exempt from these truths. So we have to remember that we are not just sinning against another person. We are sinning against the holy God, the, the God who is above all things, that supreme above all things that we just heard about in chapter 1. This glorious, gracious, all-powerful God we have rebelled against. And our reality is death. And it goes on and it, it hits us while we're down, if you will. It says we follow the course of the world. We do what everyone else says to do. The prince of the power of the air. And that, that really is Satan, who is the deceiver. He, he makes us think that things are good, but they are not. They are contrary to who God is, contrary to God's law. And the result is that we are by nature children of wrath. And, and a lot of people don't like talking about this, but this is a fact. This is a truth of God and, and a warning of God that, that the reality is that we are all children of wrath. That is our beginning. That is our starting path. That we are in the boat that holds the children of wrath. We're in the same boat as every other human being. The crazy thing is, in response to this reality of death that the scripture clearly defines here and many other places, is that we try to do good things to make up for them. We try to do the religious thing. We try maybe even to do it, even if we're admirable in our, in our motives to please God. But we're literally dead. And so if you think about a dead body, if you put the nicest clothes on the dead body and you put the best perfume 
Does it change their actual state? Does it make them alive again? No. It may look like they're more alive than they were before. It might look good to the people passing by that they're just sleeping, but the reality is they are dead. And I know that sounds a little dramatic, but isn't that what we do so often? We go to church, we make sure people see us and they know that we're here. We, we make sure that we put nice clothes on to look nice. We make sure that on social media we post about these things, about this thing about God and this thing about the society that we think is, is the godly thing. We, we put on a show so often. And a lot of times we say, oh, I got to go to a Bible study because I messed up really bad on Friday night. But in reality, you're putting nice clothes on a dead body. It is completely and utterly useless. It doesn't change your current state. And so many people are deceived in our world today, and I was deceived for many years myself, that we think we can help ourselves. We think we can do good enough to please God. We do good enough to obtain an identity and a peace that God alone offers. So don't put makeup, don't put nice clothes on a dead body. It won't work, as we know from Ephesians chapter 2. But then verse 1 through 3 talks about a current situation of death. But then verse 4, it's the transition. It says, but God. And then it goes on from there. Everything after that is God doing the work. God doing the work of changing us from death to life. And remember I said at the beginning that there were no commands that we were told to do. Well, in chapter 1, there was that one verse that it says that he commended them um, and he's heard of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, but see a few things here that reiterate that this is not of our own doing. In verse 6 of chapter 2, it says that we are seated with Christ. Not only does God give us a seat, so he does the seating, he does the work, but he's also sitting us right next to him in the heavenly places. So God sees you as so important that not only is he going to bring you from death to life, because that alone is incredible and I'll take, but he says, you're going to sit with me. You're going to sit with me at my right hand. You're going to sit with me in all authority, power, and dominion. What grace that is and not of our own doing. A dead man just doesn't walk up to a king and sit next to him. And then verse 8, it goes on. Chapter 2, verse 8. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Even the faith that you have, that God is real, that God exists, that Christ Jesus died for our sins, that faith is a gift from God. You cannot, I cannot, boast in the faith that I have. It is a gift of God according to the scriptures. And then we can also see verse 10 to reiterate this is not us. Um, it says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The good works that we sometimes boast about the the good works that we post about on social media wow that was a good thing i did and a lot of times with a little bit of pride or a little bit of ooh, i did better than that person but remember even if that work is good because there are good works that we are called to do rather than wow that was a good thing i did we should say or we can say thank you jesus for allowing me to do that good thing even the good works that are according to Scripture and according to the commands of Scripture can be coming from the wrong point of view. If you think that your good works are from you, 
then you are sadly mistaken. It says here that any good work you do is created by Jesus, and we just walk in response to them. Jesus and Jesus alone brings us from death to life. Jesus alone brings us a new identity. Jesus alone is everything that we can do. Everything flows from this foundation of Jesus Christ. From death that we deserved for eternity, Christ died on the cross so that we can live. In John eleven twenty five, 25, just briefly, it says that Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. So don't try to put makeup on. Don't try to put that, those clothes on a dead body. Cry out to Jesus for resurrection. Cry out to Jesus for life. And he will receive you. He will give you life. He will seat you next to him in the heavenly places. And he will give you a new identity that you are chosen, that you are loved, and that you are given graces, grace lavishly. So as we move to the next section of, of Ephesians, please remember that these truths of resurrection life in Christ and identity in Christ are the foundation of things that we are going to talk about. So we are moved now after resurrection, after given a new identity, we are now called to be unified in Christ and with other people. So let's read verses 11 through 22 of chapter 2. Therefore, Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility." And when he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So, when you are no longer, so then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And there's a lot of words there. There's a lot of theological stuff that we could dive deep into. But once again, we're not going to go into every verse, every truth. I, I would love to, but maybe another day. But here we see this overarching theme, as I mentioned before, is our unity in Christ. And he, he says here to remember two things. Paul says two things to remember. First is that remember you were Gentiles in the flesh. They were looked at differently 
uh, by the Jewish people. So the Jewish people um, were of the ancestry of, of the Jewish people, God's chosen people, and then Gentiles were people that were not Jewish, essentially everyone else. And especially when it came to religion, especially when it came to the faith, um, even in the faith of Jesus Christ, it was talked about circumcision of you have to follow the Jewish law if you want to follow Jesus and all of these things that the scripture talks about happened back then. And realistically, it was because of their ancestry. Just because they weren't born into a family, they were told you have to do this certain thing. If we look at it that way, that's, of course that's wrong. But it was a struggle in the early church that Paul addressed here. So he said, remember that you were Gentiles in the flesh. Remember that you were looked down upon, that you were restricted in how you could participate in worship towards God. And there was much suspicion and even hatred in both of these groups. The second thing he calls us to remember is that we were separated from God. That similar to death, we have no relationship with God. We were at one time not only dead, but we were separated from a relationship with God due to our sin. So Paul is re reiterating, again, going even back to the beginning of chapter 2, of remember that you're separated. Remember that you were dead. You weren't always chosen by God. You weren't always saved by God, but you were separated. You were dead. And without Christ, our current state would be separation. Uh, it would be restrictions and even hatred between one another, other people, and separation from God. And, but remember in verse 13 of chapter 2, and, and I'm going to read it again because I think it's important. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So you were separated from God, you were dead, but you now have been resurrected. And to use another word, you were brought near to God through the blood of Christ on the cross. The punishment that Jesus took was our punishment that we deserved. That God brought us into his presence because of the blood of Christ. And it then goes on to say that he becomes our peace. So this unity from God now develops that we are now made one with Christ that we are reconciled, we are brought back to relationship with God. It's as if we were with, uh, separated as enemies, but God brought us back out of his grace. We are put in right relationship through the cross, through Jesus, not through our works. So this unity starts with our unity in Christ. And our unity is not an action that we do, but God is the one who comes and rescues us and brings us near. We are not the active participant. It is passive on our part, but he is actively pursuing us and bringing us back through the blood of Christ to unity with God. And just think about that for a second, that you have unity with the supreme power, the supreme being, the creator of all the, all the world and the universe that you are made one with him, that you are unified in Christ. Praise God that we are brought near by the blood of the cross. And the second result of this unity in Christ through the blood of Christ alone, it says that we are made one with other people. So when we are made one with Christ, we also take on who he is. He is our peace. And we naturally should and will make peace with others. There should be no hostility. It is killed. In verse 18, it brings out this point. It says, For through him, through Christ, 
We both have access in one spirit to the Father. So both groups, the Jews and the Gentiles, those people that were uh, at enmity with each other because ultimately of their ancestry and their, their idea of God, that they are brought one with Christ, unified through one spirit to the Father. And then verse 19, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So not only are we made one with Christ in relationship with God Almighty, we then, therefore, as the next result, not of our own doing, we are now made one with other people. And so it's as if God is the vine, which it shows about, talks about in, in John, that we are connected. We are just a different branch in the same connection. We are connected to all people in Christ. And it goes on in verse 20, um, and we won't read it, but it talks about this, found this uh, household of God and that Christ is the cornerstone. He's the beginning and the center of the building. The apostles laid the foundation through the spirit, through the word of God, through the early church. But now we are being built into it. So we are one block with a whole other lot of blocks. So we are unified as blocks around the center of Christ. This is how God designed the church. This is how God designed believers. So we come to the point of being joined together with others. But this is how God designed it. And so how is this relevant for, for us today? First, many are dead in their sins and have not experienced the resurrection in Jesus. And there we need to preach the gospel. We need to preach this resurrection that God is offering us. And how relevant that is today. And also, and I think even clearly, especially in the media, many are not joined together, even within the church and with greater society. There is extreme division on many issues. And though it's not the same circumstances as Jews and Gentiles, but it was similar in the sense that there was that enmity, that there was disagreement on how things should work. So let's follow the model laid out here. We must be unified with Christ, resurrected in him, first and foremost. Otherwise, it is putting dead, clothes on a dead body. Secondly, we must live in this resurrected life joined together. Regardless of race, social class, place we live, life's background, we must live in the resurrected life together. So let's go on and read Ephesians chapter 3, 1 through 13, and we'll keep moving. So it says this, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone uh, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. 
This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. So let's look how Paul responded to the fact of unity. He starts off chapter 3, verse 1. It says, for this reason. So based on the unity of Christ and the unity of all people, the household of God, how do we react? And his response to the unity, verse 6, is very clear. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. He preached the gospel in response to disunity, both between God and man and between man and man. He preached the gospel because true unity only can come from Christ, from God. So may we be unified with Christ, seek reconciliation with the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we live in this path that God designed, we will see many hearts changed for the glory of God. Can we do this together? This is hard. If we look at the culture around us, the society around us, division is everywhere. People may not want to hear the gospel. People may not want to hear that Jesus is the unifying power between us and God and also between man and woman and man and man. But we are called as believers, based on our foundation of resurrection in Christ and our identity in Christ, that we must preach the gospel in Christ. So may we be unified with God ourselves. May we be saved. May we repent and believe in him. And then out of that outflowing, that pouring out of grace that God gives us, may we seek reconciliation with the centrality of Jesus Christ, with the centrality of the gospel, because we know that the power of God is in the gospel. The power of God will change hearts and it will cause, as a result, unity between believers and also in human beings. So remember, we really can't do this ourselves because that task sounds too big. It sounds too big for me, at least. It's intimidating that we are called to do this in a place and a society that it's hard sometimes. But we need help. And that's where the last section we're going to cover briefly, we are, we are strengthened in Christ. Not only are we given our identity, we are given resurrection we are given unity in Christ and with others. We are then, for those tasks and for the tasks to come, we are strengthened in Christ. So let's read Ephesians three fourteen through the end. It says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts, through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So here, Paul, knowing that we have our identity, resurrection, and our unity in Christ alone, he knows that it's almost not enough in the sense that we still need help, and we need help from God to achieve anything else. 
And so things that Paul prayed for, real quick, he, he was prayed for strengthening and power through God's Spirit. He prayed that Christ would dwell in our hearts. He prayed that we would be rooted and grounded in love. And we ask, what is love? How do we know what love is? And he also prayed that we would have strength to comprehend, to know the love of Jesus. That we would be filled with the fullness of God. So God, God and Paul know that we can't do all these things. These things are hard to even comprehend. So God, help us to understand. And I pray that we would ask together as a body of believers and individually as a son and daughter of God, God, show me who you are. God, help me to understand the love that you have showed me. Uh, help me understand the love that you have for that person near me. God, reveal more of yourself. In verse 20 and 21, it says, Now to him who is able, and, and this beautiful um, ending of reminding us that things may seem impossible. And things may seem impossible in your life today. And to be honest, they are. But they are impossible for you. Are, it's impossible for us to live a good life, to, to do good and to please God. But by God's grace, by his power, he is able. There is no thing that God can't fix, that God can't change. He can do it. God will remind us of who we are to drown out the noise and the lies around us saying who we are by saying the truth. God will resurrect us from the dead state that we are in regardless of the sin that we have done in our past life or even in our past week. God can do it. God can resurrect you. God will unify us with him and also with others regardless of the division that is all around us. We say, oh, there's, it's hopeless. There's going to always be division. Maybe there will be some division, but God will bring all things and reconcile all things to himself. Let's pray with faith that God can and will unify us to him despite our sin and that ultimately that God will bring us closer together for the praise and glory belonging to Jesus. So we have our identity in Christ. We're resurrected in Christ. We obtain unity in Christ. We are strengthened in Christ all of this having the centrality of Christ in every aspect because he is the only way any of these things can be achieved. So now what? What do we do? And, and Ephesians 4 and 5 go into some practical things, but I want to read Revelation chapter 2 to end our time today. So Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. It says this, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, so the church that we're just reading about, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and hearing and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And so we're going to focus in just on the one verse. It says, uh, remember where you have fallen, 
Um, It it says um, that you've forgotten, you've abandoned the love you had at at first. And so the church at Ephesus that we're reading about, it was commended by their good works, their endurance, not partnering with those who are doing evil, standing up for the truth. They didn't grow weary, all these things. However, they left their first love. They focused on doing good. They focused on doing what the church should do and, and religion and all these traditions. But they left the one thing. They left the thing that was central that we just talked about. They had fu- functionally forgotten Jesus. They had forgotten where they came from. They were doing good, but it was not out of the outflowing of their first love of Jesus Christ. And how true does this sound in our day sometimes? We can be focused on doing what is good. Um, We can be focused on doing good to our neighbor and standing up for truth against false teaching. We try to seek justice in our society. All these things are good and needed, and they should be continued. But But may we not lose our first love in Jesus. May we not forget where we came from and where Jesus brought us. We forget the solution that was given in Christ. So may we not forget the solution that was given in Christ, which is to preach the gospel, to believe the gospel, be unified in Christ, and also unified with others. May the gospel, may Jesus Christ be center in everything that we do. So as we go into Ephesians 4 and 5 next week and talk about how to walk in Christ, don't, don't forget that you cannot walk without being made alive. Don't forget that you wouldn't be able to walk without the identity that God gives you, the unity that God gives you. So may we not forget, may we repent of forgetting Jesus, may we forget of, of repent of where we forgot, where we came from, and may we cling to Jesus um, for the forgiveness of our sins and for the unity of Christ. So he is the reason that we are able to walk. He is the reason, and out of his abundant grace, he has chosen us to seed us with him. May we we repent of leaving our love for Jesus um, out of our functional lives, and may we repent that we, we have tried to do life, and dare I say, even our walk with Christ, without him. Remember where you came from, death. Remember who, you, who brought us to life, which is resurrection in Jesus Christ. And remember who we are seated with Christ. May we worship him and out of the outflowing of our worship with him, may we walk in him as we're going to be covering next week in Ephesians 4 and 5. five. Let's pray. God, we thank you, um, Lord, that you have done all these things, Lord, that not us, that we can't take credit, Lord, but you have resurrected us from our deadness. You have given us an identity that is sure and certain, Lord, that you have made us unified with you and unified with others, Lord, that you have strengthened us to even do and to comprehend any of these things. So, Lord Jesus, may may you forgive us, Lord, please forgive us for doing good outside of the focus and centrality of Christ. Lord, may everything flow from a worship and love of Jesus Christ, and may you have the honor and praise forever and ever. Give Give us faith, Lord, that you can do all things, that you can do the impossible. And, Lord, may we walk in what you have planned for us. Lord, we love you. Lord, we need you, and we pray um, that you would fill us with your spirit and reveal to us more of who you are. 
In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.